As I came here saying I wouldn't mention two things. One was politics and the other was rugby. And I saw Andy Jackson with his shirt on. And what did I say? I said, what happened yesterday? I'm sorry, Andy. I should Listen, I'm going to say straight away, I mean, if you don't like, I'm a Kiwi, if you don't like rugby, just ignore, ignore this, but um, all I'll say about the Welsh yesterday is the, the ref did you, all right, that's all I'm going to say, nothing more than that. Um, always be worried about somebody who turns up with lots of books. Be very worried, especially if he hasn't organised himself at all. Won't be a sec, guys, sorry. Okay. Um, you know, in Psalm 23, um, the psalmist David, is David, said of the Lord, he said, the Lord said, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies, in the presence of turmoil. We heard from Harrison before talking about God wants to release peace out of a cage. Not just for him, but for, for many. Now, peace is funny because you think surely something like joy is released out of a cage rather than peace. But, you know, what? The God in the presence of turmoil will set a table for us and one which, in which, our, which, which uh, anointing will flow. And life will flow as well. And what I'm going to talk about today is about preparing a table. Preparing a table in our own lives and preparing a table for the presence of God. Um, before I do that, and really just to take things forward, I want you to, um, to, you to indulge me a little bit because I'm not going to speak here without showing my family, if that's all right. Is that okay? So can I throw up picture number one, please? You've got picture number one. Come on. So I'm... Where are we? Wait for it to come up. Can you see it? There we go. Okay. So at the moment, so this is um, from the left. You've got, well, you got Faith and Kim and Faith in the middle, Benj on the left and Alex on the right. And down there you've got Hope and Haley. Now, my daughters, many of you will know, some of you will know them. Faith and Alex are over in New Zealand. And they've uh, got Haley, who is now 16 months old. And uh, uh, Kim and Benj um, uh, are in Market Harbour, and they've got a six-month-old daughter called Hope. Absolutely love them to pieces. And we're together, we've been together for the first time, like for so many of us, for the first time in three years because of separation and COVID, and also because of planet, frankly. It's a big planet, you know. It's actually getting everybody together. So they're around. Uh, Faith, Alex, and, and Haley are around seeing different friends or whatever. Um, so let's flash up the next picture quickly. Number two. Oh, what's number two? That's me. Try number two again. Oh, there you go. Oh, yeah. That's, okay, cute. So, Hope on the left, Haley on the right. And they're just beginning to get those personalities. I saw Haley for the first time in New Zealand last year when, in July when she was roughly about Hope's age. And both big eyes, and they have that glint and twinkle in the eye where you rise. This isn't just a Cabbage Patch doll. This is a real person. <laughs> you know what I mean? And suddenly they're full of life and they see you. Let's go on the next. So you've got have a bit picture. Get next no, number three. Number three. Not me. 
Yeah, granddad, yeah, exactly. Oh, you can't cross it. There's, there's hope. Now, hope, basically, again, she suddenly has this amazing twinkle in her eye when you look at her. And you think, oh. oh. But then the, the next one, final one, this is hope. This is, that's hope. Haley coming up. I'll probably get their names wrong all the time. It's, it just goes with the territory. I'm afraid. There you go. Is, stick on this one now for a moment, Haley. Now, I saw them. I, I, I was over two weeks ago. I walk in the house and everyone gives each other a big hug. They're staying with, with uh, Faith and Alex are staying with Kim and Benj. And we, we say hi, sit down on the chairs. And then suddenly Haley gets out of her mum's grasp. She walks around the table. She climbs onto my lap and gives me a huge hug. And she's looking around the whole time at mum and dad. Like that, just thinking, is this safe? Is he safe? Is he dodgy? You know, is he all right? And she just, and I'm, we're all sitting there, and Faith is blubbing, and, you know, and Alex is beaming, and we're thinking, where's that confidence come from? Where's that confidence come from? That she'd know, she'd only met me once when she was five, six months old. How come she just made a beeline for me and gave me a big hug? Which, doesn't she know what I'm like? I mean, for goodness sake. Where's that confidence come from? And it says it's coming from a mum and dad, isn't it? She's looking at a mum and dad and thinking, this is a safe thing to do. This is the right thing to do. Yeah? Sandra taught last week about confidence, didn't you? And what it is to build confidence and to be confident together and realize that you know, we can be confident in God. And confidence, you know, is something that we create in community together. It's something that we... That we, that we build together as family. And there's a sense in which when we see somebody responding to God, it gives us confidence to do the same thing. When we see somebody who approaches God and feels connected with God, we realize, hey, that way's open for me too. Because I know my friend connects with God, therefore I can too. You know, in the presence... Who, who, uh, uh, could somebody just find Hebrews 4.16, please, while I'm just reading this? Um, in the presence of God, we find love, acceptance, inclusion, and in the presence of God, we find identity and overflowing life together. Yeah? Go, bud. Thank, thank you. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. We're confident not because... Um, we're confident because we know who we're approaching. We're getting to know he's safe. We're getting to know he's for us. We're getting to know he accepts us, includes us. And let's go back to that passage in Psalm 23. God prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I'll come back to enemies a bit later, by the way. It says, and what he say? He says, um, he anoints my head with oil and my cup overflows. You know, it's only in the presence of God that, that in, in the presence of God, we, 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 we experience like overflowing life together as being family. But we also experience, experience that anointing, we get understanding of our own identity together 
because we're getting to know what God is like. Does that make sense to you? That's, to me, that's a, a central part to, to what God wants to do in our lives. You can take the pictures down now. Sorry. When we're in Market Harbour, just to say, I, I was in Loughborough to about 1999, and my mind went back, actually. I remember Gareth asked me to preach back then, gosh, in the late 90s, so a long time ago. I remember we were going through a time where God basically, quote-unquote, turned up every week. And Gareth had asked me to come and preach, and I'd get ready, and I'd think, oh, I've got the word of God for me. And just before I'm about to speak, Gareth would say, you're not speaking today. And God would suddenly move, and it'd be exciting. And he said, can you speak next week? Fine. So I went the next week, and I got ready. And he said, that'd be funny, but you're not speaking today. It happened three times. I'm not holding it against you on it. <laughs> um, but it was, it's a strange one. It's, it's like sometimes you've just got to be open to what God's going to do. Because at the end of the day, it's God's agenda. It's not ours, isn't it, really? It's what God wants to do. But we've been, we were, I was leading a church in Market Harbor for about, um, a church expression, I'll, I'll call it, for about 12 years or so. And one of the, we wanted, we want table, if you like, was an important thing to us. The table was a, a big thing to us. And we had this thing called Covenant Meal, which was like the center of what we did. We met in homes, and uh, Covenant Meal for us, I think I've said this before here, what we did was once a month as a community, that we'd all, all spend the day together in, in our house or different houses. We, had a, we grew to about 50 or 60, so typical numbers would be about 30 or 40 in our house with kids, big house. And we'd literally come on a Sunday, we'd just spend the day together. And we'd start, we'd start by, by breaking bread at the beginning. We decided, look, when we finish, we'll just have the wine and we'll go, if everyone's ready to, to pile out. The first time we did it, we, we were together for seven hours. We had a bouncy castle in the garden. We had, for the kids, we had people talking in a different room. Some people were praying in another room. It didn't matter what we were doing. We had four, value, four values, if you like, three or four, that we wanted to fulfill as far as we were doing. Number one was that we were family. The second was that Christ was central in everything we did. He was at the center. The third was we, our expectation that we were going to be transformed together. And the fourth thing, so that we could transform those around us in the community. As far as we were concerned, anybody could come. So we had folk who'd have their church gatherings in the, in the, in the town, and they'd come and join us afterwards from different churches in the town. A lot of the other churches treated us not as a threat, but almost like as a church experiment, uh, so as, as a town experiment. And so we just had fun together when they realized we weren't a threat. So we even had a point where we had a, we had a hot tub in the garden, and uh, I remember that we head of the Catholic Church in the town and the Anglican priest, were, uh, we had a minister's fraternal thing together. And they'd got the lid off the hot tub and they were pressing the bubbles to go on and off out in the garden. Yeah. Father Owen, who I used to call him Father Ted, which wound him up a bit. And, <laughs> and um, Chris Moody, who was head of the, of the Anglican team at the time. And they, and they just said to me, listen, it'd be funny, but do you use this for baptisms? I said, yeah, we do. We, I mean, over the time, we probably baptized about 50 people in there. And that was the point because you couldn't, f and they said, That's the, the issue is we, we get people coming to us wanting to get baptized. 
like adults want to get baptized, but we don't know what to do because the local swimming pool is never available. So well, do you want to use ours? He said, sure. So we effectively were just supporting one another in what we were trying to express, and that's, that's what all we were doing. But if you like, that was our table. There were no rules as such. The only rule was we're family, Christ is central, and there's an expectation to be transformed so that we could be transformative to our communities outside. We carried that on for years, months a month, and it became central to what we were trying to express of that table that Jesus was preparing, where, if you like, he'll anoint our heads with oil and our cup would overflow. Okay. Just turn to Matthew 9. Matthew 9. I've been told that the, um, the Silverstone Formula One starts at 3 o'clock this afternoon, so I'll make sure I'm finished by 3. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, you do? Okay. All right. Matthew 9, verse, verse 9. It says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew. It's interesting. He's writing about himself. A man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many, I like the word many there, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Just to put it in context, tax collectors doesn't mean they're HMRC, inland revenue, they worked for the tax office. Version they did. They were effectively, they were swindling their own people. Effectively. So you could say that many swindlers... And sinners came and ate with them and, and, and their disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So these guys are looking in and thinking, why are you eating with all these swindlers and sinners? Can I say for a second, I don't think Jesus was regarding them as swindlers and sinners. Yeah? I think he was regarding them as those who wanted to be with him. But who needed him. Those, if you like, who needed a doctor. Who realized they needed a doctor. Very simple phrase I put here. Jesus includes religion excludes the difference between religion and Jesus Jesus was known and criticized for who he included religion was exemplif is exemplified by, by what it excludes by who it excludes just turn over to Luke 15 now, this is exactly is looked on as the same same situation so we're in Matthew's house if you like still it might, be, it might be a separate situation, I don't know. It says this from Matthew 15, verse 1. Sorry, Luke 15, verse 1. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man 
welcomes sinners and eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I want to go back to Psalm 23. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Who's opposing Jesus gathering here? It's the religious leaders are opposing Jesus gathering with, quote-unquote, in the New International Version, the sinners. Why do you think these folk hung around him? Open question. Why do you think, any thoughts? Why would, why would all these, quote-unquote, sinners, these people, these, these tax collectors, these swindlers, why so many? Why would they hang around Jesus? Because he didn't, he didn't judge them all. Or condemn because he didn't judge them or condemn them. I mean, you can throw it out a bit further and think, why would we? If he were, if we were around, then why would we hang around? Why would we hang around? Any thoughts? Because we're thirsty and we've, he's got what we want. That's great. We know our need. He's thirsty. We're thirsty and he's got what we want. He doesn't judge us. Go ahead. He gives them grace. Yes. Anything else? Yeah, that's a biggie. He gives them attention. You know, go ahead, man. Yeah, that's spot on. He sees the best in people where so many see the worst. You know, there's two different bits there. There's one bit, of, you know, Jesus gives me what I need, which is totally valid. We know with hungry, we know with thirsty, he gives me what, what I need. He's good for me. The other side is how he treats me. He gives me attention. He treats me as someone worth knowing. He gives me value. Gives me respect. There's two different sides, isn't there? You know, if somebody says, he's good for me, Jesus is good for me. Good, well, broccoli's good for me, apparently. Apparently broccoli is good for you. But when I look at Jesus, I don't think of a stick of broccoli. And why am I saying that? Because I'm not being awkward. We can easily get into the thought of, so it's, it's like it, it, on one level, he gives me what I, what, I, what I want and what I need. And that is spot on. That's, that's valid. But it's more than that. It's more than that. He goes deeper and he says, I'll include you. I'll accept you. I'll, make, I'll create the environment where you feel loved. Go back to what I should, picture of Haley jumping onto her, dad's, her grandpa's knee. The latest I've seen, talk about broccoli. She had a mouthful of broccoli before I last saw her. She jumped on my knee. The latest thing to do is jump on my knee and shout, Grandpa! Like with a big green mouth. Um, There's a, I remember John Wimber years ago saying that he had, this picture, he had this picture of his grandchildren jumping on his knee and beating his stomach like this and just cuddling and beating his stomach. He said, approach the throne of grace. <laughs> what went through his mind is how easy... So is it irreverent to think of God like that? No. To think that you can come onto, jump onto God's knee and know that you're received, that know that you're loved, to know the value he holds you in when others think lowly of you. Goodness me, that's a biggie. Why did they hang around? Yeah. Redemption. Yeah, spot on. 
goes so deep, doesn't it? You know, in that story, that story went in Luke. I haven't really taken it any further. Um, by the way, guys, if I talk for too long, just say, could you shut up, please? <laughs> lost track of time. What happened in this passage in Luke is that these religious leaders say to Jesus, so why do you eat with, valid question, why are you eating with these people we wouldn't go anywhere near? These sinners, these swindlers, why are you spending time with so many? What's different about you? Fair question. It's not just a criticism. We want to know. Yeah? Now, Jesus responds to them like a rabbi or like a teacher in those days. And he says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you a parable. And that's what tended to find in those, days, in, in those days, a parable was told to explain what, uh, situa- uh, to answer a question or to answer a criticism. And he says, okay, so you're wondering, if I spend all this time with swindlers and sinners, what does that make me? Well, let me tell you through a parable what I'm like. And actually, he doesn't just tell one parable, he tells three. And the first one he talks about, he says, let me tell you what's going on here. It's called it's a parable of the lost sheep and he said imagine this shepherd and they've got a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost one of them is stuck he said imagine that shepherd deciding to leave the 99 out in the open field so they're in potential danger because he's making a beeline for the one that he's that's really in trouble and he's made them their ultimate, his ultimate focus. So you wonder why I want to spend time with these people? Because that is what I'm like. And when I find them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate that I've found them. That is what my heart's desire is like. I'm looking for those who are really, really in need. The second power he talks about is the, called the parable of the lost coin, where a woman has ten coins, and she loses one coin. And she doesn't know where it is, so she sweeps the house and she looks for it and then celebrates when she finds that one coin. Coming back to what my, my, my friend here said, he's, basically the woman is putting value in that one coin. Saying, look, I know I've got all this others, but I'm going to put value in that one single coin. But Jesus says, that's the sort of person I am. I put value in each of these ones you see in front of you here. Every single one. And just to rub salt in the wound, he then talk, he gives this, talks the, to them about the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son that many of us know whether we've got a church background or not where you've got two sons. And the younger one turns to his dad and says, I want to make a name for myself. I, I want to be a self-made man. I want you to give me what's mine so that I can go and invest it. I don't know, I'll invest it on cryptocurrency, whatever. I'll make loads of money and then I'll be completely independent. Yeah, I'll be a, 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 a fueled by his own, if like individualism, he's going to run off and do what he wants to do. In the, Israel, in the Jewish culture, he's basically saying to his father, right now you're holding me back and I'd rather you were dead. Please. I want to go and do this. And then what happens is he finds that all his other friends are just as individualistic as him and that he's basically been ripped off and he's ended up with no money or whatever. And he comes back and he's thinking. It says there he comes to his senses. Different translation give different things. And I personally don't think he entirely comes to his senses. And I'll say why. So he goes back and he's got this strategy. He says, 
I need to go and say to my dad, I've messed up. I've completely messed up before you, before God and everybody. Secondly, I don't deserve to be called your son. I don't deserve you to be my dad. Thirdly, so could you give me a job, please? See, at the, the, the center of what he's still thinking is, I still need stuff. I still need stuff. So how can I get stuff? I'll have this strategy. I'll go back and I'll get some stuff. So he goes back and when his dad sees him, he runs out to meet him, hugs him, kisses him, puts a robe on his back and a ring on his finger, welcomes him back. And he gets tongue-tied. He says, Father, I've messed up. I no longer be... I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he's forgotten the third bit. If you read the passage, he doesn't say it. He doesn't say, could you give me a job? Because when his dad hugs him and kisses him and shows him true value as a father, he realizes his true identity. And the, the game's over. I think that is the point where he comes to his senses. When his dad, dad hugs him, kisses him, and brings him back. And Jesus turns to the religious leaders. He says, you want to know why I'm mixed with these folk or eat with them? Because this is what I'm like. You think I'm just eating with them. It's much, much worse than that. I run out to meet them. I grab them. The worse they are, the more I hug them. I put a robe on their back, ring on their finger, I pull them in, and I make them the center, I make them feel the, the most valued person here, because that is what I'm like. Yeah? So God's ta the table that Jesus creates is a table of total and utter inclusion with no boundaries at all, none, period. That's the difference between Jesus and religion. He will have everyone in, without exception. Can I say, the second, there's another bit, there's another passage, we won't turn to it now because of time. In Mark 2, where Jesus, it says in Mark 2, it says, and to be honest, every now and then you find a, you find a, a, a pet heresy. So if you want to think this is heretical, it's my pet heresy, all right? So don't, don't worry about that. It says that Jesus comes back to, he comes home to Capernaum. Now in my mind, I'm thinking, this is your home, isn't it? If he's come home, he's come back to his own home. Something he's come back to, it says he walks in the house, and the house is stuffed with people. It's full to the gills with people. In, there were people, there was tax collectors, the usual crowd, the, tax, the swindlers, the sinners, his disciples, and also some of the religious leaders and teachers are in there too. It's full. See, Jesus operated an open house policy, and in my mind, I'm wondering if his mum's around. As he's thinking, your, your dad would do his nut if he was still around. I mean, look at this place. This is, you know, this is, it's, it's crowded. But he didn't only op operate an open house policy, he operated a, an open roof policy as well. Because what they did was they cut a hole in the roof to let people down to get healed. Yeah? It says, go ahead, buddy, sorry. Yeah. God had been prompting me through the whole talk, and um, 
I was praying with a friend and um, and he got a message that I, I had a rucksack on my back. Um, and this rucksack, I've got curvature of the spine, so my, my back's quite, well, it used to be quite bent. And, um, and that rucksack, and I, I believe that rucksack was emotional baggage that I've, I've held on to. And um, everything you talked about, like coming to the table, and God's been prompting me in the, in the, in the treatment center I was in constantly. And, uh, and um, I've, 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 I'm like a doubting Thomas, <laughs> constantly. Um, He'll tell me something, and the spirit prompts me, and 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 I and I I, I push away from it, and um, I can't do this anymore. You know, I can't I can't stop pushing away from what God's telling me, and um, the baggage the baggage the baggage that's going on is 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 um, is is my my father and and my son. I haven't seen my son for seventeen years. Um, I haven't seen my dad for twenty years, um, and. Um, I'm trying to build that father relationship um, with the father, and um, yeah, I just see, I just have to get up and talk to be honest, because like, Hadrian, Hadrian, Hadrian. Let's pray. For, can we pray for Hadrian right now? I'm going to say this, Hadrian, uh, that on the drive over here, I saw a woman walking down the road with a very severely curved spine, and I just prayed as I walked past, Lord, what would straighten her spine literally as I was driving up the road past Pizza Hut actually <laughs> just literally just walking to the foot there Father I ask in your name Father you reveal to Adrian the depth of the value you show him as a dad that overshadows what he might have experienced of a father in his relationship with his own dad it goes deeper and builds him strong. Father, physically, that you straighten the spine in the name of Jesus. Father, that you bring it into line in your wonderful name. Father, I ask that the, 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 the dove that's been caged is released into a place of peace and out of turmoil in your wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Earlier on, that um, I was reading Psalm 42. It was after Harrison spoke. And it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? And it's about being, not being at peace. And um, the person, the psalm, psalmist, was writing from a place of real um, pain. He had a wound in his body, real pain. And he felt oppressed by the enemy. And he was speaking to his soul. He's saying, Why am I so downcast, my soul? And his answer was, hope in God, for I shall again praise you. You are my help, and you are my God. And I just feel that's what you need to do is just to hope in God. Whatever your pain that you've been through, God knows. But he's going to restore you. That love of peace uh, is going to come over you and restore you and give you hope again. Thanks for your share, mate. Thanks. So, my back... Um but the good news is <laughs> my back's a lot straighter and through prayer and stuff and like, yeah. And li literally it's just emotional baggage that I've kept hold of and it's literally, I looked down so long and now I'm looking up. <laughs> Fantastic, that's great. Robert.
It just strikes me that the key thing about what Giles has been sharing and what we've just been hearing is that God meets us where we are. It doesn't matter if you're a tax collector sitting at a table, if you're a guy called Levi up in a sycamore tree, if you're a woman turning up at a well at midday because that's the only time she feels safe because of her reputation. Wherever you are, whatever you're at, God meets you where you are and he wants to take you further. I'll just, I'll just go for another 10 minutes if that's okay, guys, and then we'll, we'll see where God wants to take it. Um, I was at an airport when I, was, when I was flying over to New Zealand to see my, my folks, my, my daughter and her husband and my granddaughter. And um, I wasn't, you know, I was just in a hurry and I managed to get myself uh, into a lounge, a freebie thing. And I sat down and I thought, well, at least we've got a bit of a break here. And this guy came up and just said hello to me. And we just got chatting a little bit. Now, prior to this, this moment, what I, did, I just felt was I, I decided to buy a book online by a guy called G.K. Chesterton. He's a sort of Christian theologian, philosopher. And it's a book called The Everlasting Man. I decided I want to read this while I'm away for a month, get myself into some real meaty stuff, and I had this book. I'm just picking up on what was just said about, you know, we need to be ready for what Ian said about God will meet you where you are. And this guy, we just sit and we just got a drink and we're going to have some food. And, uh, and he's, we just talked on spiritual stuff. And he said that he was Jewish. And he said, my, my wife has recently become a Christian. Do you know what that means? He said, and I've been really praying and saying, I'm, I feel challenged because I'm only a nominal Jew. But I'm getting intrigued by this person, Jesus. And literally, before I came here, he said, I said, God, I want to meet somebody who knows Jesus. And they said it would really help if they liked G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Could you, it would really help me if they know, if they liked G.K. Chesterton. So I literally reached on my bag, I put that on the table. I said, carry on. And he was gobsmacked. And we just talked. We just talked. He was heading to America. I was heading through Singapore. We were heading in completely opposite directions. We had about an hour together just talking about the goodness of God. Here's a bit of truth for you. I've never read this book. <laughs> I started, I couldn't get, I'm, I'm a bear of very small brain really. I mean, I, I try and put on, um, I know stuff, but I couldn't get into it. I really couldn't. I realized all it was was a token. God said, I want you to get this book. I, mean, I, will, I will read, honest, Gareth, I'll read it. I will read it, maybe. But it feels like it served its purpose in that very moment just in doing that. It's almost like, all I'd say is that there's sometimes the table can be a little bit like the, 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 the road to Emmaus where Jesus comes alongside and just goes with two guys and travels with them and just sits with them and eats with them. And suddenly as they open up the word, and can I say the word is open up Jesus. Jesus is the word. As they open up about Jesus, suddenly their eyes are opened and their hearts are on fire. Sometimes that happens in the table as well. Yeah. Just a couple of other things very quickly. Imagine a, a newcomer arriving to Jesus' table. A bit of play acting. And the newcomer comes up to Jesus and says, look, I've not been here before. You know, I've been um, doing a bit of sin, sinning and swindling in my time. I don't know, whatever. Uh, who are you? And Jesus turns to him. He says, well, I'm the host. You're the host? Yeah. A bit of background, by the way. 
which is, in, which is sort of interesting, in the Anglican Church, Catholic, I think, as well, they call the bread or the wafer the host in breaking bread. They call it the host. It's nothing to do with having a meal, but it is in a way. The host, word host comes from the Latin hostia, which means victim. So he's saying, so who are you? So I'm the victim. <laughs> who are you then? I'm the sacrifice. Put it another way, who are you then? I'm the meal. I'm the person you're going to be eating. You see, the way that Jesus is, is he says, I'm, going to pour, I'm here to pour my life into you. I'm here to do you good. I'm here to, do you, to, to basically feed you as much as I can. I want you to feast on me. Does that make sense? So I'm the host. I said, well, what do I do? If you're that, what do I do? And Jesus says, something a friend of mine says all the time is, oh, you be you. It's very disarming. If somebody says to you, oh, you be you. What do I do? Oh, you be you. And you feel like saying, do you really want me to be me? <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> Seriously? You be you. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Disarming thing to say. You be you. And Jesus says, you be you. And around the table, he says, I just want you to be you. I want you to bring whatever you've got. Whatever you've got inside, it's got value. I value you as a person. Frankly, I value what you bring as well if it's come from you. Because it's, I, I value you. I just want you to get stuck into. And the thing about a table is, it's not like... Um, you know in kitchens where people want to have lunch together in fam, what you often find in fact, the table historically was the central fulcrum of community. It's where we forged our identity together in the family. It was around the table. But in desperate lives, people's lives started to just to fracture a little bit. And that, that table setting where we sat down to eat together started to disappear. And in kitchens, you suddenly see you have the central island with the bar stools and people are all facing the same way. They're not looking each other in the eye. Now, the table is really where we gather around Christ, to get where we're together, and we can see each other in the eye. I'm not looking at the back of your head all the time. Where we see each other, and we... You know, there's a time where we understand... We can hear what people think, but we don't know why they think what they think. Do you understand the difference? Folk can get very sectarian. They can get very partisan. I'll say this on political. We can be political without being partisan. And partisan, we just say to people what we think, but nobody knows why we think what we think. And it's, it's around the table we start to understand why we think the way we do, or why we what we love and what we, what we enjoy, what makes us passionate, who we are. We discover each other. And as I said before, it's only in community, in family, that we discover identity. There's a, a friend of mine, she's a Lutheran pastor in the States called Nadia Boltz-Weber. Um, and they're very liturgical in the way they do church, but I remember talking to her about something that they do, and it's a different culture, but they, their church is called something like the Church of Saints and Sinners, which is interesting about what we're talking about. And they will have people who come in, and they literally have anyone coming off the streets, and they have a box, and they basically, it's liturgical, so there's a process to their, their meetings. And even if they're a visitor, they take something out of the box and they said, 
you, 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 you be involved straight away, day one. You're a visitor. You can be involved day one. And it's not unknown to have somebody who's a visitor at the front welcoming people. You've only been there for the first time. You might think that's a recipe for chaos, and it probably, probably is in some ways. But the, the, what the beauty of it is, is everybody felt included. And it was where she's working is it is an environment where everyone feels excluded from society. So it, to me, that's a, a beautiful thing to do. Um, it's a beautiful thing to do. When we come together, you know, we need to take our wrappers off. The word trust comes from the Greek word aletheia, which means unconcealed. And we discover the truth about each other when we take our wrappers off. This isn't a, this isn't a requirement for, for, for nudity, by the way. <laughs> don't go there. But we don't put up our arm and we, we feel, but that's some, that is actually something you create over a period of time. It's, it's not something that's assumed where you feel, I feel safe amongst you. I think it's easy. Um, just very quickly. There was a guy who I knew back in the 80s, good grief, who was a, a Labour MP called Eric Heffer. I got to know him later on in life. He was a communist in the 50s who became a socialist and he stood, he was a controversial figure Folk don't realize he was one of Margaret Thatcher's closest friends because they never saw eye to eye and, and he wasn't a yes man. Um, one be a second. I just want to read this to you. So he was, this is back in 1968, I believe. He said, um, oh, got the wrong page, sorry. He was in Jerusalem. He said, then I went to Israel in 1968 and visited the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I walked along the Villa Dolorosa along, almost in a trance. Here was the path that Christ had trodden, persecuted every inch of the way. The crown of thorns, the cross, suddenly became very real. I could actually see in my mind's eye the agony of Christ, suffering, the suffering he carried for the poor. He was to be crucified because of his love for them. Among the people who watched this, some, as always, were mistakenly glad of the suffer with Christ, every inch of, the, of his painful path. I could see it all. It was as if I was at the crucifixion itself. And all my early beliefs from childhood came flooding back. I felt bathed in the bright light, and Christ was saying to me, come with me. We we're on the same side. I followed in my day. He was an avid atheist. He was staunchly against religion, although his background was in Catholicism. He said, I said, come with me, we're on the same side. I fought in my day for what you believe in today. I'm the son of God and you must help me secure God's kingdom. It's a book, it's called Why I'm a Christian by Eric Heffer. It's interesting, there's a little bit at the back here is written that says, I was moved to read this fascinating expression of faith by a good and Christian politician that's signed by Lord Rees-Mogg. It's Jacob Rees-Mogg's dad. He breaks down every political division. He breaks down every divide, and he comes for those who set themselves up against the knowledge of God from any side of any fence, because as far as Christ's concerned, all are included. Let me say a bit about, remember that phrase in Psalm 23, he prepares a table in the presence of my enemies. What does God tell us to do with our enemies? 
love them. You know where I'm going, really. He says, prepare a table in the presence of those I already love. You see, the, when he painted this picture of the, of the lost son, the, sorry, the son coming back to his father, he's doing to these religious leaders, and he talks about the older brother who won't come in. He won't come in. He said, I've tried to live a good life. I'm against this because I've tried to, I've tried to keep the rules. He said, yeah, you've, he said, you got it wrong because you tried, your brother got it wrong because he didn't keep the rules. You got it wrong because you tried to keep the rules, but you broke relationship. I'm here to restore your relationship too. And it says the father pleads with him to come in and join him. Jesus pleads with those who set themselves up against God because they want to exclude. He says, I want you to be part. I want you to enjoy this because there's something very new and very special I'm doing here. Yeah. I'll finish with this very quickly. We've got time? One more story. I've probably told this before. It's just, to me, it's just a good example. And I, um, there was a, a lady who was in the church with us here years ago, and some of us mentioned her name or remember her, Marion Gray. Marion was in, in Market Harbor with us, and she had been through a tough time. And we, she, we knew that we were trying to create homes, if you like, tables in the community where people could just gather. And she came to me one week and said, I'd like to invite my whole street for breakfast. And I said, I'd, and I was concerned about her. <laughs> uh, really? How many houses on the street? About 200. And she had a little terraced house. Really? Do I come have a chat? So she came over and had a chat, and she brought a map, and she had a map of the whole street, and she'd been praying for every house. And I was still nervous about this. I said, what do you want to do? He said, I want to invite them every week. How about once, we do it once, just once, and we'll get involved and we'll help you? No. And then it finally we said, what about once every, she wanted me to commit once a month. Okay, once a month. And then she pushed me to once every two weeks. I don't know how she did that. First time she turned up, there were 25 people there. Second week, town time she had, there were 50. It carried on and on and on. And it grew into, it, it made the, local papers it was it got deemed as marion's breakfast and she would just have the community and we were basically had people on, on a roll continuously supporting this breakfast that was happening every every couple of weeks and people would come along and say oh fantastic has anyone got saved i'm thinking i'm not counting <laughs> actually not counting i'm just seeing the the community transform some were, but I wasn't particularly counting. I just wanted to see this, what was, how this would play out. It got to the stage, there was a grassy, forested area halfway up the road, where in the summer, the whole street threw a carnival called Marion's Breakfast Carnival. They said, you have created community amongst us, which never existed. We didn't know each other, and you've, you've created a table, if you like, where there never was one. The weird thing is, Marion actually ended up leaving, leaving us as a church, and she moved from the area. And Marion's breakfast carried on. <laughs> she had started something that she couldn't stop. She was, she'd gone, but they carried on. And to me, it was a wonderful picture of the kingdom of God, of God's kingdom infiltrating, if we let him loose, of getting involved and doing things. You know, there was, finally, there was a, 
a woman who, when Jesus was at a table having a meal together with the folk, who came in with a, a, a big bottle of perfume, and she'd, been, she'd had a bit of a rough life. But she knew grace, and she knew forgiveness and redemption. And she came and she broke it over his feet and anointed his feet and then, washed his, then, then wiped his feet with her hair. And you had Judas say, who's, Judas was the guy who looked after the money, and he said, you know, do you know what we could have spent all that money on? Do you know how much that money that would have cost? Do you know what we could have done? Do you know how much, how much that cost? And Jesus, in my words, said, turned to him and said, I wasn't keeping count. And then some other folk came along and said, do you realize what she's been doing? Do you realize the depth and the amount of sin in, his, in her life? And Jesus, in my words, turned to them and said, do you know what? I'm not keeping count. Jesus wants us around the table. He's not, kept count. He's not keeping count. He wants our communities around the table and he's not keeping count. Open house, open roof, policy, whatever. You know, it half makes me wonder. It says later about Jesus. He says, birds have their nests, foxes have their holes, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Well, it's not surprising. They took his house apart. <laughs> I assume they're into deconstruction or something. I don't know. They took his house apart. <laughs> Told you it was heresy. Oh, okay. Can we stand in his presence? Just, just for now. And if you can't stand, please don't feel you have to stand. Just let us enjoy Joy's presence, for goodness sake. Um, wherever we're at right now, the words I'm going to say, you feel loved, you feel accepted, included by God, by your Father. Father, in your name, wherever we are right now, Lord, I ask that we would know your love, that your inclusion and your acceptance. Lord, for those we represent in the community around us, Lord, let them feel your love, your inclusion, and your acceptance. Lord, if you need to lift the veil from our eyes to see them as loved, included, and accepted by you, and Lord, let us prepare your table in the presence of those you love. In the presence of those you want to draw in. Whether they keep away because they know they've been doing it all wrong. Or whether they keep, it, they keep away because they've been doing it as right as possible with the broken relationship with you. Let your kingdom come in our homes, in our lives, in our communities. In your wonderful name, amen.